We'll be looking at Romans chapter 1, the first 17 verses, although we will be uh, focusing um, most of our time and energy on verse 16. Our series, beginning with the last Sunday in December and continuing on through next Sunday, is I have given the title of Living the Dream. In it, we have reviewed the fact that the King has come. That is, He was born, He lived, He died, He rose again and secured the victory and established His throne and His rule upon the earth as it is in heaven. In short, by the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the living and loving triune God is realizing His dream of His kingdom upon the earth as it is in heaven. And as children of that king, citizens of that kingdom, we are living His dream. Living out His will here in this place upon the earth as it is in heaven. What does it mean to be a people of such a king? What does it mean to live as citizens in the kingdom of such a king who has won such a victory? Well, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, it means pressing through the comfort and the courage and the communion and the new affections which are ours so generously by the gospel to practice them in the pursuit of loving unity, without which, we noted, the gospel and its joy remains incomplete. It means cultivating countercultural values and vision and vocabulary, countercultural passions and priorities and practices. If We've been tracking and with, this, with this theme, and if the implications of this have begun to dawn on us, we might find ourselves asking with the same astonishment with which the disciples asked Jesus, who then can be saved? And how? And of course, as Jesus said in answer, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Which, for someone like me, I suppose for someone like you, is a great relief. But the question still remains, how? How? Are we to live the dream of God's kingdom rule through Jesus upon the earth as it is in heaven? How are we to live as faithful men and women? How are we to faithfully live out in the relationships and the responsibilities that we have been given our identity as children of the king, citizens of his kingdom? How are we to live the dream of a happy and holy life? How are we to live faithfully as children of the King 
citizens of his kingdom. Which brings us to our topic today. We are not only a people of the king and citizens of his kingdom. We are a people of the gospel. Not only redeemed by the gospel, but nourished and strengthened, equipped and trained by the gospel. The gospel is not just the what of our Christian faith. It is the how of the Christian life. The gospel is not just the what of our Christian faith. It is the how of the Christian life. It is not just the content of Christian orthodoxy. It is the power and the wisdom and the strategy of Christian orthopraxy. The gospel is not merely the announcement of Christ's victory, though it is assuredly that. Nor is it merely the good news that by that victory we have been freed, made alive, and transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light, though it is gloriously that as well. The gospel is not even, really, merely a conflict between grace and law, though that is certainly a part of it. But beyond these things, The gospel is also the pattern and the power and the wisdom and the way for us to live faithfully as citizens of that kingdom who for just a bit longer continue to sojourn here among his enemies in his world. Which is what brings us to the opening of Paul's letter to the Romans. Read with me. Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, reading through 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about, whoa, here's a, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, 
in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Stunning opening words to this letter of Paul to his brothers and sisters that he has yet to meet in Rome, and to us here in Flintstone, Georgia. Let's go to him in prayer. And so, God, we do come and we pray that by the powerful working of your Spirit that we have already been reminded of in the reading of your Word, that you would meet us through this Word, that you would speak to us, that we would behold marvelous things from your Word, And find ourselves stunned by the reality and the power of your gospel, the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. So to that end, Father, we pray that you would protect us from error and feast us upon your word. For we pray in Jesus. Amen. We often find ourselves in difficult circumstances for which we feel, and some of us know, we are wholly inadequate for situations or circumstances in which we feel or some of us know, some of us in an increasing basis, that we lack the skill and the wisdom and the strength and the stamina necessary for surviving. Some of you, I know, are going through years where you think, I am not sure that I can make it another day. Some of you find yourselves in relationships where you, find, you think, I'm not sure I can continue. I don't know the way forward. I don't know what to do. Perhaps you find yourself in such a relationship wondering just how much longer you can hold on. Perhaps you have a set of responsibilities that have been placed upon you yet again, and you are wondering where you will find the time for it, the energy for it, the strength for it, the sustenance for it, to see you through it. Our impulse, of course, is to reduce, 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 simplify, 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 until we reach a level in which we feel finally adequate and capable to handle our responsibilities. But speaking from experience, if you try to reduce, 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 and simplify, 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 until you feel adequate, you will disappear. The reality is that outside of Christ, as Paul tells us in Ephesians, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. No matter how small a responsibility, a dead man can't fulfill it. 
we will always have a haunting and oppressive sense of our inadequacies, no matter how simple, how small we are able to make things, because the issue we discover often far too late is not how we organize our circumstances, but how we nourish and strengthen our core character. For out of that flows the issues of life. You see, until we are rooted in, nourished and strengthened and trained by the gospel of God's wisdom and power in Jesus, we will always feel inadequate. We will always feel exhausted. We will always feel lost and alone. Because the wisdom and the power of God for living well in this world is poured out freely and fully only through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. It's a stunning statement for us as North Americans to read this statement. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Well, of course you're not ashamed of the gospel. <laughs> Who would be ashamed of the gospel? That's why we're North Americans. The gospel's great. Great for business. Why, why would you even say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul? Well, let's consider first the I who is not ashamed. The one here who is not ashamed. is Paul himself, of course. The writer to the Romans. He is not ashamed of of the gospel, it's helpful to remember who this guy is. One of the most accomplished men of his days, both by Jewish standards and by Greek standards. He was the one who, in the yearbook for his graduating seminary class, they have evidence of this, was voted most likely to succeed, no matter what he put his hand to. Most likely to succeed among those whose lives were committed to surpassing all men in every area, including securing the pleasure of the God of righteousness. Wow. If anybody can secure the pleasure of the God of righteousness, it's Paul who at the time was known as Saul. He is the rising star. If anybody can fulfill the dream, Saul can. He knows it all. He can do it all. And so it's in that spirit. It's in that confidence. It's with that courage. It's with that authority that Saul now sets out <clears throat> on the road to Damascus. In what I'm, I am convinced that he believes are the final stages of purging the land of all unrighteousness so that the glory of God's righteousness may be established throughout the land. 
He is on his way to purge the land of that cancer we call Christians. Jesus' followers, followers of the way as they were known. On his way with papers in hand to Damascus to purge the land of unholiness and establish throughout the land God's righteousness. Wow, what must he have been thinking about and talking with his friends about as he went on his way? We are on a mission from God. Wow, this is going to be great. I want you to feel the triumph that Saul must have been feeling as he marched with papers to Damascus. And of course, we know what happened. There was a car accident. He was T-boned by glory. It's what you get when you get a self-willed donkey who runs a red light. Ask Balaam. I'm glad Ken Austin's not here because he has another word for that one too. He's T-boned by the glory of the very God that he is seeking to serve in the person of the risen Jesus. be hallucinating. There is no possible way I'm seeing what I'm seeing and I'm hearing what I'm hearing. Because I know everything there is to know about the righteousness of God and a risen Jesus does not factor in. And if I'm seeing a risen Jesus, if I'm hearing a risen Jesus, then it changes everything I thought I knew about the righteousness of God. So great a change, as some of us were reminded earlier this morning, so great a change that it takes him three years of careful study to make sense of it. Come on, Paul. Just add the resurrection to your theology. You're good to go. But no, the resurrection is not just another element in a progressing revelation. It is the element by which all things hold together and make sense. His encounter with the risen Jesus completely inverted his notions of God's glory. Completely inverted his notions of God's power. Completely inverted his notions of God's exercise of his power and authority. He was set on the mission to to display the glory of God's righteousness. But that mission only began to make sense and become effective when he himself had been confronted and captivated and converted by the power and the glory of God's loving righteousness in the person of the risen Christ. 
Only then did he come to understand the power and the wisdom of God's righteousness. Of course, this is also why he recognizes in the Romans whom he has not met. Verse 8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So great is this thing that not only is it reached to the utter depths to captivate and convert me, but it is spread to the ends of the earth to captivate and convert people who were in darkness, even in Rome. What could possibly be so powerful as to do that, to change the world? Keep in mind, in terms of Paul's conversion, not only the power of the gospel to captivate and convert Saul and the Romans later, but also Ananias. Have you ever thought how much courage, how much faith-filled courage it took Ananias to throw open his door and say, Brother Saul, welcome! By the way, um, I just got word today um, that um, we have a... um, uh, Osama bin Laden's son, who will be coming into town, and we need someone who will be willing to welcome him and uh, feed him and house him for the night. Any takers? Yeah, I didn't think so. <laughs> I can't do it. We have no space. <laughs> A busy schedule. Can you imagine that's what is going on in Ananias' mind? Ananias' confrontation with Jesus that day is no less powerful than Saul's own confrontation with Jesus that day. Are you kidding me, Jesus? In case you didn't know, he's here on authority from Jerusalem to kill people like me. The power of the gospel is the power to change a person from the inside out. The power of reversing the way a person feels and thinks and changing the way a person speaks and acts. When a person is captivated by the peace of Christ, he or she is less suspicious, slower to attribute bad motives, slower to accuse. He or she is characterized by changed habits of tone and speech and changed behaviors. And lo and behold, life begins to sprout up around them. Ray Cortese, some of you know, is a PCA pastor in Central Florida. Very successful PCA pastor in Central Florida, I might add. Whatever that means. I'm not sure what it means to be a successful pastor. I think it might be something like being a successful messiah or something like that. I think it involves dying. Ray Cortese, being a good North American that he is, and... Um, I am simply channeling him here, so don't um, think that I'm speaking out of turn. But he says that he arrived in central Florida to plant a church. And he was there on his white steed 
to captivate Central Florida and transform Central Florida for the gospel. It's a great vision. And it's wonderful. And it's something that captivates our souls, doesn't it? Oh, to be a part of something like that. And as he says it, I was going to change Central Florida for God's glory until I realized that God's glory is to change Central Florida by changing me. Then we had a problem. Because immediately, as his testimony goes, things started to go poorly as the Lord slowly dismantled him in order to confront him and captivate him and convert him by the beauty of Christ as revealed in the gospel. Cortez's success in Central Florida, if that's what you want to call it, is that he himself was confronted and captivated and converted and continuously converted by the gospel of the risen and reigning Jesus. Because of his success, however we define that, he is invited to speak all over the place. And he's invited to, to speak about his success and to give helpful hints about how we too can be successful like you, almighty Ray. And this is his message. My only success is that Jesus confronted me. Jesus captivated me. And Jesus converted me. All praise to Jesus. You want three steps for success in the Christian life? That's them. Confrontation by Jesus. Being captivated by Jesus. And being changed, converted by Jesus. Paul's success as an evangelist was not that he was so well trained. It was that he was, was and continued to be confronted by Jesus, captivated by Jesus, and converted by Jesus. Brothers and sisters, every day in every moment, this is what it ought to be feeling like to experience the gospel. We ought to feel confronted by the glory of God's wisdom in Jesus. We ought to be captivated by the beauty of God's love in Jesus. We ought to be converted by the wisdom of God's love in Jesus. Whether we encounter that process in arguments at the kitchen table or in the classroom or on the basketball court or, as in my case, in the stands at the basketball court, around a committee table perhaps, perhaps in a congregational meeting, perhaps in traffic, or perhaps in the checkout line at Walmart when 50 people are lined up and only one register is open. If we are not experiencing this process of the gospel with our deepest, most natural desires and impulses, then neither are we being captivated and converted by the gospel's power. If we are not feeling with Jesus, 
the agony of Gethsemane to pray, nonetheless, not my will, but your will be done at these points, sensing a battle of wills occurring within us at these points, then it is likely that we are simply being carried along by the spirit of our age. In these times of being confronted and captivated, converted, we are actually participating in the power of the gospel. We are actually participating in the work of Jesus Christ by confessing our own misguided agendas, repenting of them, and following Jesus in what Paul describes here in verse 5 as the obedience of faith. So that begs the question, what is this gospel with which Paul is being confronted? Well, he says it, he opens with it. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And then, in typical Pauline fashion, he, in, in cascading, uh, cascading phrases, he modifies, he amplifies, what does he mean by this gospel of God? Well, he means that which God promised beforehand through his prophets. So he means everything that the prophets talked about way back in the day that are recorded for us in Holy Scriptures. It's that which he promised beforehand about his son, or in the language of Isaiah, about the servant, about the anointed one, an appointed one, the one who would come, this branch of Jesse. The one who would be a descendant of David. So note that Paul is making there a flesh and blood connection. This one about whom the gospel is, is a flesh and blood descendant of an Israelite king. We cannot underestimate that because, because he immediately says, he emphasizes that by saying, according to the flesh, and then in verse 4 says, and declared to be the son of God. Son of David, son of God, how can they possibly both be true? How can you possibly make such a statement and expect me to believe it? And Paul, so Paul continues, this was declared to be the case by the resurrection, which people living at the day were witness to. It's true that at the stunning, at the center of this stunning revelation of God's gospel in Jesus Christ is the mighty work of God's loving justice and mercy according to which sinners like you and I are made alive, sins forgiven, debts paid, adopted, clothed, and welcomed as beloved sons and daughters, which of course is what Paul is going to describe in glorious detail in the course of the letter. But we must remember that what he described with such glorious detail is but the burning center of what he has just described as the gospel. You see, it is by the arrival of this son of David, son of God, 
It is by his life. It is by his mighty works. It is by his abandonment. It is by his suffering. It is by his death. It is by his resurrection that he is revealed in the flesh as nothing less than the glory of God's loving righteousness. Even though it made no sense to the people at the day, including his closest disciples. And so we can forgive Saul for not getting it. And perhaps we can forgive ourselves for not getting it. Because it doesn't make any sense. Which now brings us to understanding why Paul would say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. As glorious as that gospel is, as marvelous as the riches are that are ours because of the gospel, why would he even imagine the possibility of being ashamed? Well, because he knows the gospel. Why might he feel ashamed such that he would have to protest to his audience that he is not ashamed? Well, it helps to remember that, in fact, He's writing a letter to the Romans. That is to say, Christians who are in Rome, Jesus followers who are in Rome, followers of the way who are in Rome. Now remember, what was the, first, what was the basic proclamation of the gospel in the day? Jesus is Lord. Now, can anybody remember who else claimed such a title. That's right, Caesar. With increasing uh, clarity and vigor and authority. He was writing to Roman Christians, most of whom were living in the slums of Rome, possibly quite literally within the view and maybe even in the shadow of the imperial palace. The location, remember, the imperial palace was the location of the greatest superpower the world had ever known to date. So great, in fact, that some of the emperors actually began to believe that they were, in fact, the lords of all the earth. Coming, in some cases, to demand upon pain of death that people bow down and worship them as such. And so then here comes Paul proclaiming the name of a wandering Palestinian Jewish rabbi, Jesus, the Lord, the Christ, verse 7, who had died the most shameful death known in the world at the time. And saying, no, in fact, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Jesus had hinted at such a thing already in his confrontation with Pilate. When, Jesus, when Pilate said to him, do you not know that I have authority to release you, and Jesus looked him square in the eye and said, you have no authority that was not given to you. 
Pilate immediately thought of Caesar who appointed him to the post. But Jesus was referring to God the Father who appointed Caesar to his post. No, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Can you imagine the readers looking at this letter for the first time? They hold the letter and they look at the palace and they hold the letter and they look at the palace. Where one hangs on the cross, one sits upon the throne. One rules over the greatest military and economic power of the world that, had, that the world had ever known. The other, dead and gone. As far as the watching world knew at the time. One who had been discarded on the bottom of a trash heap. And one who is at the pinnacle of heaven itself. Who would you believe is the Lord? Conclusion? Paul, you're an idiot. <laughs> you're an absolute idiot if you think I'm going to fall for that. It doesn't add up. You put Jesus is Lord and Caesar is Lord on a ledger and you, and you stack up all the evidence. Caesar wins, hands down. Which, of course, is precisely, now bear with me here, how we think. We love Jesus as, as the great, my great personal private Savior who grants me comfort when I need it, courage when I need it, communion and new affections when I need them, but, to, but is not up to the task of tackling national debt and national security and peace in the Middle East or peace on our city streets or the complex problems of immigration and border walls and entrenched policies of pride that poison a stagnant swamp. No, we need real wisdom. We need real ideas. We need real power. We need real experts for these sorts of challenges. And quite aside from those big macro themes of international and national politics, most of us have been convinced that Jesus doesn't even have what it takes to, to tackle the challenges of our roommates or our classmates or one another or our spouses or our children. which is precisely at the, precisely the moment in their thinking and in our thinking that Paul therefore says, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. What are some of the reasons we find ourselves shrinking back in shame from the gospel? It sounds so naive, doesn't it? Forgive? For, forgive one another? Do you have any idea 
what we're talking about? If you had any idea what we're talking about, you would never, ever suggest a need to forgive. Love your enemies? Are you serious? As a real political option? You're kidding me, right? And it sounds so foolish. Believe a message the reliability of which hangs upon a one-time unreproducible miracle called the resurrection? Oh, that's just a spiritual reality. So if you feel it in your soul, then that's what we're talking about? No, we're not. We're talking about the flesh and blood, space and time, bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Oh, and so with Thomas, we say, that makes sense. And if that's true, then you're right. But I won't believe it until I see it. Which is precisely the point of God's design to gather two or more people in the name of Jesus from around the world. It sounds so arrogant. Desire to command, to share the story and live it in such a way as to compel belief? Come on. I mean, it works for me, but for others, really? It's so offensive. It seems so oppressive. Lord? Authority? Really? Who do, you just, who do you think you are? Who do you think this is? Brothers and sisters, if we do not find ourselves increasingly appreciating the shame of the gospel, it is likely that we are not hearing the gospel. If we find the call of the gospel to the obedience of faith, to be increasingly implausible, it is likely that we have drunk far too deeply of the spirit of our age. For it, that is the gospel, is the power of the triune God for salvation to everyone. In the gospel is revealed the power and the wisdom and the love of God's glory. When we, when we see the gospel in taking root in the life of God's people, we are actually able to peer through that and behold the glory of the triune God. And participate in it. By the gospel, we receive the wisdom of God, the understanding of God, the courage of God, the confidence of God, the hope of God, the joy of God, the humility of God, the strength and the stamina of the God of steadfast and abounding love. And this strange... Countercultural, counterintuitive wisdom, understanding, courage, confidence, hope, joy, humility, strength, etc., and etc., of God's glory is vindicated and proven right and effective and powerful for real life in the real world by the resurrection of Jesus. That's what he says declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, 
our Lord. You see, the gospel equips us, it invites us, it welcomes us, it strengthens us to participate with Jesus in his death and resurrection. And that's what it feels like to live faithfully as his children, citizens of his kingdom. To participate with Jesus in his continuing life, which is what Paul talks about when he speaks about knowing Jesus and the power of his resurrection. To participate with him in his vision and his values and his vocabulary. To participate with him in his passion, in his priorities, in his practices for flourishing lives in this world. That's what Paul means when he says later in another letter, that in the gospel we have all that we need for life and godliness. To live, brothers and sisters, as a child of the king, as a citizen of the kingdom in an upside-down world is to be regularly confronted, captivated, and repeatedly converted from the values and vision and vocabulary of our world to the values, vision, and vocabulary of our king. From the passions, priorities, and practices of our world to the passions, priorities, and practices of the king the king of glory himself. It's a daily practice. It's practical. Three steps to faithful flourishing in this world. Allow the king of glory to confront you, to captivate you with the beauty of it all, and to convert you that you may walk with him in glory, and in life. And so, Jesus, we pray that you would feast us upon the wonders of your great love for us through your Son, Jesus. We pray uh, that we would, with Paul, be stopped in our tracks to be confronted with the glory of the resurrection, with the wonder of his great love, and so be changed. And to that end, we pray that you would have your way, for we pray it as your children in Jesus. Amen.